0: Welcome to Counterpunch Radio, my name is Eric Draitzer, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 7 and uh, before I bring on my amazing guests this week, I just want to remind listeners and I know that I'm sort of drilling this into your heads now every week if you've been following the podcast regularly, but just so you know, we do get new listeners every week, so I want to reiterate the point, you know, Counterpunch is, is truly independent media, it's truly independent and this is really vital I think in the times that we're living in with all of the propaganda, whether we're talking Ukraine, whether we're talking Syria, the the great game of imperialism, you know, social issues, what have you. There are so few truly independent media outlets, and Counterpunch is one of them. And it's not only independent; it's independent from what I would call the establishment left, the pseudo alternative left. It comes from a a different perspective, a counter narrative that it provides, and I think that's essential. So, uh, if you agree with me about that, then I think one of the things you could do is subscribe to the magazine, the print magazine. Um, get that subscription. You'll be, you'll be financially supporting the Counterpunch Project. You'll be getting excellent print magazine articles that are really top-notch from all different contributors, all different angles. Um, of course, you can also uh, kick in a few bucks here and there to donate to the podcast as well. And uh, obviously, following the web presence, the online presence, and all of those possibilities are out there. However, if you can can't go to that length and and subscribe to the magazine. One other thing you can do: give us a positive review on iTunes. Help uh, bring Counterpunch Radio to the top of the list. Bring it to more people's attention. Positive reviews on iTunes are really really important in this uh, wild west of podcasting or whatever you want to call it. So anyway, um, whatever support you can provide is really really uh, appreciated. And I know I speak not only for myself but the whole Counterpunch team. Um, with all of that. stuff. Stuff out of the way. Let me turn to my fantastic guest this week. I teased it a little bit last week at the end of the program. I said I was going to have a big guest. I said we were going to talk geopolitics and here we are another week and I am pleased to be able to introduce Pepe Escobar onto Counterpunch Radio. Pepe is really I mean, gosh, I don't know anybody who's doing better work than Pepe truly. Um he's the roving correspondent for Asia Times. You can find his stuff regularly in Counterpunch. You can also find him on RT Sputnik, Russia Insider, Tom Dispatch, many other outlets. Um, Pepe's stuff is truly the best. Pepe Escobar, welcome to Counterpunch Radio.
1: Thanks very much, Eric. Uh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, come on. You come no, look, on. <laughs> And It's a great pleasure to be with you and a great pleasure to be with all Counterpunchers. I've been following Counterpunch for a long time, and it's a real pleasure to be with all of you.
0: Thank you so much. Um, well, look, we got so much to talk about. There's so many things happening. Why don't we jump right into it, Pepe? Um, I know you've been you've been following the issues um, regarding China and especially these recent developments in the South China Sea. You've written about it extensively. I've, I've seen you talking about it publicly. So let's start there because it's captured so many headlines in, in recent weeks, um, the developments in the South China Sea. Um, let's talk a little bit, first of all, maybe for people who aren't so familiar with what's happening. What's China doing? Why is this an issue? Um, what, and, you know, you hear this phrase a lot that China is, quote unquote, creating facts on the ground. So let's lay the groundwork a little bit. What's China doing and how do you see that from a strategic
1: angle? Well, uh, China is creating facts on the sea in fact. And uh, the other players, the ASEAN players, Southeast Asian nations, they were also creating their own facts on the sea. Uh, This is in in the the American discussion of the South China Sea. It's always the Chinese aggression angle, just like on Ukraine. It's always the Russian aggression angle. Uh, Vietnam uh, Malaysia, the Philippines—they started their own uh, dredging, uh, uh, construction on reefs, uh, small uh, military, not even military bases, but uh, military outposts in, in some of the Spratly Islands. Especially a while ago, the Chinese now—they decided to muscle in. Uh, uh, in terms of, uh, it's it's a much more extensive. Uh, reclamation project in fact in, in some of especially in, in some of the mini islands in the spratleys why this is also important first of all because it's part of uh, their own negotiating position vis-a-vis the south china sea the, the only possible diplomatic solution which is being pursued alongside all the, the sabre-rattling, is a negotiation between China and ASEAN. For instance, I'll, I'll give you just an example. This week, Prime Minister of Thailand is visiting Singapore, and they were talking this week about Thailand passing the baton to Singapore in terms of negotiating, uh, top negotiating position inside ASEAN, vis-a-vis China especially. And the main contention point, of course, is the South China Sea, even though it's, Singapore is not exactly concerned, directly concerned, or Thailand as well. The Chinese position is we will negotiate bilaterally all the players, especially Vietnam, Philippines, and Malaysia. Uh, ASEAN would like to negotiate as a block. The problem is, even inside themselves, Ten Nation ASEAN, there are five countries concerned, the South China Sea, they have their own different positions. They clash among themselves, and they are reclamating the same area inside the South China Sea. If you see if you see the map of which country wants what, what reefs or portions of the sea. It overlaps all over the place. So what's going to happen from now on, uh, apart from uh, U.S. meddling, everybody here, in, I'm in Southeast Asia at the moment, everybody here in Southeast Asia, they know about U.S. meddling, or they know about U.S. interference, or they know about U.S. interest in defending the so-called little guys in the dispute against the big monster China. It's much more complex than that, of course. Uh, Because for the Chinese, this is directly linked with one of their silk roads, the maritime silk road, which goes through the South China Sea. They, the Chinese say we own 80% of the South China Sea. That's extremely debatable. It's not true. Maybe it would be around 50% to maximum 60%. What they need to negotiate with ASEAN, with each ASEAN member, is uh, those overlapping areas. They are so important because there's a lot of unexplored oil and gas in these areas. This is not about the reefs. This is about energy, once again. This is... Uh, uh, it's it's a barely disguised energy war, in fact. Uh, projections, around, you know, there are many projections around here in Southeast Asia. There may be at least five trillion U.S. dollars of unexplored energy over there. So the, for the Chinese, this is a matter of national security because it ties into their energy diversification, uh, very, very complex energy diversification strategy, which is bypassing the Malacca Strait, essential. Everything is to bypass the Malacca Strait. And if they have a lot of oil and, glass, uh, and, and gas right on their eastern seaboard, on their southern uh, seaboard in the South China Sea, excellent, at least for the next uh, 20, 30 years. So, This will be resolved diplomatically between China and ASEAN. Obviously, for the United States, it's the perfect, absolute perfect pretext to interfere not only uh, between the relationship between uh, China and ASEAN, but also in terms of the, (laughs) we always come back to the same thing. The pivoting to Asia, yep. which is uh, Southeast, uh, uh, Southeast Asia, South China Sea, uh, Western Pacific, Indian Ocean. Uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon because first the U.S. would have to solve the Middle East conundrum, which uh, that which is will open <laughs> a few hours of conversation. For yeah, us. exactly. <laughs> but uh, 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 just, just sum it all up. Uh, the Chinese, they they want a diplomatic solution. They don't, want, they don't want a military confrontation with anybody in the South China Sea, be it Taiwan or Philippines, which is the weak link, of course, Vietnam or Malaysia. Uh, ASEAN is a very messy thing. I've been following ASEAN since I have moved to Asia in in the mid-90s. It's a very mathy thing. It's evolving. Uh, There are a lot of very good diplomats and negotiators, but there are a lot of people who, you know, they're barely aware of the complexities and and the problems uh, among the uh, 10-member nations. And the Chinese, obviously, are very clever at exploiting these differences. But uh, they will sit down eventually with all of the other Four major players, plus uh, Taiwan, and they will have to solve this diplomatically uh, it 's not a matter of uh, and the Chinese have said this a few what two or three weeks ago. they are not going to establish uh, uh, an uh, identification air zone in uh, the South China Sea like they did in the uh, in the East China Sea, yeah because thes and Kakawas they say this is not appropriate at the moment. So this means that this this is the the Chinese way of saying we want diplomacy to talk. If there's no diplomatic uh, solution, uh, mid-term, they're thinking, then they will install and proclaim their own uh, Asian identifications, air air identification zone. So I'm not uh, pessimistic about it. Uh, First of all, don't forget uh, all. Virtually all these uh, 10 nations in ASEAN, their major trade partner is China. China is uh, sort of, uh, uh, colonizing would be a very strong term, but uh, they're absorbing Mm -hmm. uh, economically all these countries, one way or another, slowly but surely, and in many cases, (laughs) very, very fast. Like uh, in the case of Thailand, in the case of Myanmar, and, you know, for them, you know, they, they can sit on it for a while, for a few years, uh, while they diversify their energy strategy through Russia, uh, pipelines, Central Asia, etc. And then when they have a diplomatic solution, the South China Sea, they can start investing in um, recovering all that oil and gas in the South China Sea. So this is a long-term process. The, the problem is uh, when this is read through uh, You know, the lens of American corporate media is like there's a war in the South China Sea starting tomorrow. That's not the case at all.
0: Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. Although there's a couple of things that I would add to that. And this is also an issue that I've been following um, closely, you know, in the time that I've been writing about these issues. I remember back in, uh, I think it was mid-2012, the Chinese launched what what is still, I think today, an unrivaled, unmatched oil rig into the South China Sea. I mean, really cutting edge, deep water, oil and gas recovery rig that was, in many ways, it blew away a lot of what the United States and some of the other Western corporations have been involved in both in the Arctic and elsewhere so The Chinese, it is a long-term strategy, but they're actually working towards it in a material way already, even though a lot of these conflicts have not been resolved. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see some of these corporate investments in places like the Philippines and in places like uh, Malaysia and elsewhere, where they're concerned because it's not simply a long-term strategy they see. They see China making material strides towards that, whereas from their perspective, they're Beginning to lag behind. And I think that that's really critical. And I think that also, I would just add, and I want to get your take on this the Chinese are masters at speaking out of both sides of their mouth on a lot of these issues. While the Chinese diplomats say, oh, no, 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 they hold up their hands. We don't want an air defense identification zone. You start getting quotes in Xinhua and some of the other official Chinese press from military sources, and they're saying, now hold on. And uh, ADIZ, the air defense identification zone in the South China Sea, is essential for us. So it's sort of a question of who do you believe and who's really kind of um, speaking for the the, the the true Chinese agenda, the Chinese mindset? Uh,
1: the diplomats, essentially, because they are subordinated to Xi Jinping directly. Uh, the PLA is more complicated because uh, Xi Jinping, he will have to regiment all powerful PLA commanders at the same time, which is something that he's been doing, by the way. But this is a long-term process. Mm-hmm. And they are a lot of uh, extremely belligerent characters, to say the least, among top PLA commanders. But um, uh, the foreign ministry is a completely different situation. It, it's like in Iran. They, they, In Iran, they respond to the supreme leader, and in in China, they respond to the political, Xi Jinping. It's simple as that. And they know that the only solution is the diplomatic solution. Even though they are more assertive now than they were, let's say, Five years ago, under Hu Jintao, for instance, but Xi Jinping is different. Yeah. Xi Jinping, his agenda. Every time, every time that I'm thinking about his overall agenda, it's it's mind blowing. All all these vectors that he has to follow at the same time, uh, many of them overlapping, and he has to establish control on virtually everything. Mm-hmm. It's 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 really, uh, like I was in China in uh, early this year, and most of the time I was there, I was trying to connect all these dots. How does he control provincial governors? How does he fight corruption, not only inside the Communist Party, but provincially? He will have to know exactly what's going on in uh, Xinjiang, in Fujian, in San It's completely crazy. And how does he... Uh, erect like a sort of uh, overall philosophy that he can sell not only to the average Chinese in the metro stations in Beijing or you know selling dumplings to the guys who have the money and who control the economy and the heads of the state-owned enterprises etc so it's it's fascinating how he has managed so far to do and fighting corruption at the same time you know The the conviction this month of the guy who was one of uh, Bosilai's protectors, in fact, it's it's a strong signal to all these uh, former or current uh, politburo big shots. Look, if you don't toe the line from now on, this is what's going to happen to you. In China, this is very, very, very strong. It's like the emperor edicting, you know, (laughs) cut off his head. It's exactly the same thing. And it works. Uh, And the way I I could see for myself the way Xi Jinping is revered popular, he's a pop star in China, not only because he's very competent and uh, you could say ruthless in implementing uh, this new vision, but he also has this uh, warmer what like Britney Spears in the beginning of, of her career, you know, or <laughs> to it, you know, and that sells in China, like you know, <laughs> it's amazing, it's absolutely amazing. So the the notion of the Chinese dream, it's it, it's fully incorporated into uh, pop China. Let's put it this way, it's been adopted by everybody, and at the same time, the international agenda, the new Silk Roads. It's, it's starting to convince not only Chinese but a lot of other players in East Asia, in Central Asia, and even in Southeast Asia as well. So this, this is a mo- it's monumental what he's accomplishing in what a little over two years, two and a half years.
0: Yeah. And, you know, also one of the things that's interesting and, you know, it's funny, I know that you follow a lot of the mainstream presses as as I do. And I mean, it seems almost like every week we have an op-ed or a cover story in the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times or the New York Times basically saying, well, the Chinese economy will collapse tomorrow. The the Chinese Communist Party is uh, facing internal contradictions and it could collapse next week. You know, you hear a lot of doomsday scenarios about, China and, you know, the potential stock bubble and all of the rest of this stuff, and yet uh, Xi Jinping seems to kind of more or less have things in hand, at least uh, to a large extent, and I don't, really, I don't really buy into a lot of this propaganda about the instability of China either economically or politically.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Eric. Uh, you just need to spend a few weeks in, in China to see for yourself, you know, and, and the way they are tweaking the model it's uh, it's it's like landing an Airbus in a jungle. In fact, uh, and they're they're doing it little by little. Uh, this uh, the new urbanization drive, for instance. Of course, there there will be a lot of corruption. Uh, there will be a lot of uh, misinvestment, like uh, building ghost cities in uh, Gansu province or Xinjiang, and nobody will come. You know, of course. But at the same time, they will build functional cities, uh, mid-level, mid-sized cities in important provinces in the center, for instance. I wouldn't say Tibet or Xinjiang. It's much more complicated to draw people from the eastern seaboard to work in western China. Of course, you need a lot of carrots to do that. Uh, It works, uh, especially with, with people that are not extremely skilled skilled workers they prefer to stay in the eastern seaboard or if they go to the center they go to Sichuan province which is booming like crazy mm-hmm. Shendu, Chongqing you know these places um, and uh, long term the the new urbanization drive in uh, until 2000 and uh, they have projections until 2020 2025 they plan to bring from 150 million to 300 million people from the countryside in all provinces to these big cities. Urbanize the country. And China is already 50, 51% an urban society, it will be 70, almost 70% urban by 2025. This is an amazing feat. Obviously, it has to be centrally controlled. Uh, the directives are there. Uh, it means all the prevent. Provinces and the provincial governors—they have to work very closely, uh, and of course they have to rein in uh, speculators in the real estate market. It, it's it's so complex, but it's 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 beginning to work. Little bit. you see it. There are some ghost cities. I, I hadn't had the chance to go to Xinjiang this time. There are some ghost cities in Xinjiang, but there are some, you know, uh, new sort of model suburban cities springing up. Mm-hmm everywhere in central and eastern China as well. This, this is what they want, essentially. They, they have their go-west policy, which is to, let's say, colonize uh, Tibet and Xinjiang. But these, it, it's a desert and a, a, a Himalayan plateau, essentially. You cannot put 100 million people in the desert or in the Himalayan plateau. But you can have, uh, for instance, hubs, like Urumqi, the capital of, of Xinjiang, which is, uh, they're they turning Urumqi, people, many people don't know, they're turning Urumqi into the high-tech hub because it's going to be a very important hub in the New Silk Road. Yes. because everything everything coming from the east in the terrestrial New Silk Road, starting in uh, Shanghai and Xi'an, going all the way to Gansu Province and Xinjiang, the hub is Urumqi, and from Urumqi it goes all over the place. It goes to Kazakhstan, it goes to other parts of Central Asia, it goes south to Pakistan, the famous uh, uh, China Pakistan economic corridor. So, Urumqi, s- s- which until what, 10, 15 years ago was just uh, a big uh, uh, Chinese style, Eastern Chinese style city in the middle of the desert, now it's that uh, with uh, the suburbs uh, and a high-tech hub at the same time. This yeah. People would not even think about 10 years
0: ago. And you're, you're seeing an influx of a lot of, um, engineering types and engineering other types staff. who are going to be in Urumqi to design this massive airport they're talking about because they're, when they're saying a hub, they're talking about a rail hub. And you see that in yep. regards to this, uh, this new deal between this, uh, this freight corridor that's going to run Urumqi to Moscow. You have this, this airport they're talking about. The major, of course, pipeline issues. You know the Russian and the Chinese are talking about dual pipelines, both in the east and the west. You have an Altai pipeline. You, uh, Urumqi is going to be one of the central hubs of that. Urumqi is also, in many ways, the center of a lot of the trade that the Chinese envision coming out of Pakistan's Gwadar port, with the Chi- which the Chinese are major investors and controllers of. So all of that trade coming out of the Indian Ocean is not only going to go to the east coast of China, it's going to go north to Urumqi. So in many ways, Xinjiang, figures centrally in all of China's Silk Road plans, not just in terms of the land-based Silk
1: Road. You're absolutely right. Very well put, Eric, in fact. Uh, you, you managed to put the whole thing in two minutes. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> well,
0: I, I'll, I'll await my award and medal in the mail. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, I think that there's there's so many angles to this, of course, because there's also this, this um, simultaneous development that we've seen. I know I've written about it, you've written about it, the Eurasian Economic Union, which the Russians yes. have pushed very strongly, and Kazakhstan figures centrally in that and Kazakhstan geographically and anybody who knows geopolitics the importance of geography here Kazakhstan also plays a central role in all of this so when you're looking at these as you've coined the term pipelineistan issues yeah. Kazakhstan the Eurasian economic union all of this central asian activity is really centered around western china and that's why it's so important
1: Absolutely. And uh, it's fascinating how uh, American corporate media, they completely bypass that. Yep. Uh This happened, what, a few weeks ago, in fact. Uh, this is, uh, I had written about it before and said, look, this is going to happen. Uh, it's mer- the merge of um, uh, the new Silk Road strategy and the Eurasian Economic Union. But this was inevitable because they are complementary and they involve some of the same players are part of both strategies. And Kazakhstan, as you said, is absolutely essential. It's essential for China as traversing Kazakhstan uh, across Central Asia going west, and because Kazakhstan, oil and gas especially. So for China, this is a matter of of national interest, national security as well. And Kazakhstan, they look at the uh, Chinese market, obviously, you know, for them is absolutely perfect. Uh, Central Asia, Kazakhstan is not only the most important. Uh, there's also, don't forget Turkmenistan as well. The, exactly. the new Silk roads uh, across Central Asia will go across Turkmenistan, which is already linked to China by a pipeline that Chinese themselves built. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Iran. Iran and Turkmenistan, they have swapped deals with gas. And Iran is an essential hub of the the central Silk Road. Uh, And then immediately to the west, there's what? Turkey. So, you know, the new Silk Road across Central Asia. The hubs are going to be Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, across Iran, and finishing in Istanbul. Uh, All these countries are on board. Turkey is on board. Iran don't even mention, you know, even with deal or no deal at the end of this month. uh, China and Iran are already trading energy in yuan, by the way, for a while now. Don't forget that the the Chinese established a a parallel swift mechanism for Iran to be paid in Mm -hmm. yuan for the gas and the oil that they sell to China. This is going to balloon from now on as well. Uh, same thing uh, between uh, Russia and uh, China is going to be uh, in rubles, in yuan, or both. So, all these parallel developments are no. So, you, you have the confluence of uh, New Silk Roads with the Eurasian Economic Union, you have all these countries starting to trade energy in their own currencies, you have the Eurasian integration. Progressively going west and spanning, especially the Central Asian landlocked countries, you have Iran incorporated into, uh, I would say, the Russian uh, Chinese uh, uh, push towards integration in uh, across Eurasia, and you have Turkey who just made the the Turk stream deal with Russia. Mm-hmm. It's also complementary. Uh, the you know the much. Uh, i would say advertised in the west a rift between turkey and iran and no, now this is this is all also ridiculous because turkey they they need iran in terms of energy provider they want to be the uh, the hub for iranian energy going west to europe and at the same time they buy most of their energy from russia so for turkey you know this is a triangular this a quadrangular relationship with the uh, Russia, China, and Iran is absolutely essential as well. Now, their only problem, of course, is what the, er, Erdogan's problem with Syria. But that's another conversation. Well,
0: and actually, it, it, it <laughs> absolutely is. And I, on the on the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about Turkey because you know this this sort of concept of multi vector strategy that Kazakhstan has long since employed, Turkey is employing in in so many different ways. It's insane. But let's come back to that. And be, but before we go to the break, I just want to mention one other piece to this pipelineistan question that I know you've talked about a lot that um, I think is under the radar for a lot of people, and, and and often I think that that's a mistake, and that is the development of the Iran-Pakistan pipeline, which has been proposed now literally for decades. It's been on again, off again, scrapped, restarted, but I think that the, the well, first of all, the Iranian side of that pipeline is essentially already built. The question of financing the Pakistani side has always been an issue, Terrorism related issues in Balochistan have been a major problem of that. But ultimately, I think that the Chinese envisioned that as part of this strategy. And actually, I think a major part of it, because if you have an Iran-Pakistan pipeline, there's very little that's really stopping it from becoming an Iran-Pakistan-China pipeline. And once it goes through that Khyber Pass, once it becomes an Iran-Pakistan-China pipeline, and you have a direct energy link between Iran and China, I think that that really changes the entire geopolitical political game for China as far as all of these Silk Road strategies.
1: Absolutely, Arif. This is absolutely, the IP is an absolutely essential story. I've been following this story for years. I wrote a lot about it. It, It's a goal on both sides now. The Iranian uh, stretch is already built. Uh, The Pakistanis didn't have money to build their own stretch. The Iranians uh, volunteered to finance part of it. This went nowhere until the Chinese stepped in a few weeks, uh, what, two or three months ago. And they said, no, we will build it. We will finance it. Obviously, because they are thinking, obviously, like all things Chinese, they are sinking ahead 20, 30 years, which is what an extension of the IP from Guadar all the way to Xinjiang. Exactly. Once again, the hub. So don't forget that this, this will be parallel to the Karakoram highway, which is one of my favorite roads in the world. In fact, uh, it's fascinating because don't forget that Karakoram Highway was built by Chinese engineers side by side with Pakistani engineers. It's fascinating, you know, they're blasting tunnels uh, at a, you know, three thousand meter high. It's completely, it's one of the most fascinating engineering feats. Anywhere in the world, so for them to build a pipeline, uh, you know, parallel to the Karakoram Highway, well, the Chinese can, can do that in what four or five years. And in fact, that the fact that the Chinese are mastering new technologies so well nowadays, Chinese construction companies—they're building stuff uh, all over the, you know, uh, the the road that they built uh, from uh, Gansu Province to Tibet uh, in the in the Himalaya Plateau, four thousand four thousand five hundred meter high. It's, it's an engineering feat of the absolute magnitude, in fact. So for these construction companies, the, there are no challenges anymore. So we have IP, which will, in terms of an umbilical cord between Iran and Pakistan, is essential for Pakistan. It is essential for both, in fact. Uh, there won't be any more uh, animosity between them because they are linked by energy directly. And, of course, for the Chinese, they can use Guadar as a port as well for their own energy needs. And long term, once again, the pipeline from Guadar to Xinjiang. So it's, as they say in China, a win-win situation. It's a three-win situation for Iran, for Pakistan, and for China at the same time.
0: Yeah, exactly right. So let's take a break. On the other side of the break, I want to continue on this subject, but I want to talk a little bit more about these issues and some of the counter moves that we're seeing, because I don't think that we can, you know, if we're talking about all of these things, I don't think that we can uh, minimize the ways in which the West, the United States and its allies who are fearful of these developments might actually respond. So I want to focus on that a little bit. Um, on the other side of the break, I'll continue the conversation with Pepe Escobar. You're listening to the Counterpunch radio my name's eric draitzer we'll be right back And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Pepe Escobar, and I mean, we went through a whole series of important geopolitical developments and economic and strategic developments, and I want to finish up on some of those, too, before we get into the uh, Western counter moves. And, you know, Pepe, you've talked a lot about the, the Silk Road, actually both the land-based Silk Road, the maritime Silk Road. There's another one that, that I've talked about uh, recently, I was just on Russian TV. TV last week talking about this issue, the so-called Balkan Silk Road. And in fact, what this is really is China finding yet another backdoor into the European market, as I see it, specifically with regard to infrastructure development uh, from Greece into Macedonia and into Serbia and then into Europe proper. And I think that the Chinese are interested in that, the Russians are interested in that. And then on the other side, of course, the U.S. is looking to block that so, talk a little bit about that aspect of the Silk Road strategy and how China is penetrating the European market from the south.
1: Oh, they're penetrating South America from the south, Africa from the south. Oh, that's true, too. <laughs> and obviously the Balkans. And so. Exactly. It, it, it's part of their... Uh, Uh, industrial expansion, of course, uh, exporting their surplus capital and uh, investing all over the world. And obviously the savoir-faire of uh, Chinese construction companies that they acquired uh, literally all over Asia and uh, many parts of Africa as well. And of course uh, it's complementary to the Russians. The Russians essentially is, uh, okay, we're not going to have South Stream. Okay, it's your problem. We're going to build Turk Stream. We paid for it. We have the infrastructure. And then you're going to have to organize yourselves to buy our energy from uh, the Turkish-Greek border, for instance. Uh, and obviously, all the, 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 the uh, Eastern Europeans uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the south part of uh, Eastern Europe, like Serbia, for instance, they, they, they need that. Macedonia is very complicated, but it's near Kosovo, and we know what's in Kosovo, Camp Bond still. Yep. So obviously the Americas are absolutely terrified that they're going to have a uh, uh, Russian-filled gas pipeline maybe coming nearby, uh, supplying a... And, uh, South Pepe,
0: Europe, I'm, Pepe. I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but for listeners, what you, what Pepe just referred to, Camp Bondsteel, this is the massive NATO base that was established in Kosovo. That really, I think, should be understood as the U.S. NATO military foothold for that entire region. Go ahead. Sorry.
1: Absolutely uh, right, Eric. And obviously, it's uh, it's it's an ar- aircraft carrier. In fact, in, installed this big we will call the Greater Balkans. In fact, in, in the heart of the Balkans. In fact, and obviously, at the same time, uh, the Chinese construction companies, which they they, they see. Uh, a need for infrastructure development in that uh, neglected part of uh, Southeast Europe, uh, Balkans, and very close to Greece and, and Turkey as well, which they're already present in Turkey. So you can imagine how this is seen uh, in Washington, obviously, yeah. with absolute desperation because it's another era that they saw was uh, uh, pacified uh, Imperial American way because, especially, of, of Camp Bond still, Not really, not really. Just like South America, you know, when they saw that our backyard is uh, pacified. So, well, look what happened 12 years ago with uh, the pink wave in South America. now, nowadays, South America is becoming more, more and more independent of U.S. foreign policy.
0: Yeah, exactly. And one other angle to this, if you're looking at the headlines, people are following the news, all of the negotiations about Greece and what is Greece going to do, the potential of a Grexit and everything, you know, and it's been sort of, I think, uh, laughed off the idea that Greece would look to Russia and look to China as sort of a way of regaining leverage over the Europeans. But in fact, it's not just, I think, just a negotiating strategy. I think that there are very real economic factors for China. I mean, if you look just at the privatization of the port of Piraeus in Greece, yeah. the Chinese were looking at that as a foothold for their commercial shipping all the way into Greece and into the European market. And I think that that's part of this grander strategy that the Chinese have. And the Greeks, the Syriza government, Vartofakis and Cyprus and the rest of them, they understand that. And I think that if push comes to You might see some more substantive moves towards China in regards to helping Greece out of their conundrum.
1: Definitely, because this is part of the Maritime Silk Road as well. The Maritime Silk Road is extremely ambitious. It's it starts in uh, Fujian Province, essentially in uh, Southeast China. Uh, It goes all all over the Indian Ocean. What we could. Of course, in a conspiratorial mood, mm-hmm. would be the string of pearls. Uh, it's much more always in it. a conspiratorial mood, Pep. <laughs> <I'm> always. <laughs> but, uh, but even if even if it was a deliberate attempt to. Um, you know, build a string of pearls and a collar of Chinese-controlled ports in the Indian Ocean. That's not the point. They have some strategic places that they, some of them that they manage, like uh, Guadar in uh, China, uh, ports in Myanmar. Uh, But they have, for instance, Shabahar in Iran, which is an Iranian port administered by Iran, where Chinese vessels have a very... Important uh, stop as well, and where Iran can also uh, feed China with uh, oil and gas is starting from Chabahar. And also, don't forget, there's a there. It's it's being built at the moment a direct link between Western Afghanistan to Chabahar, which Chabahar yeah. becomes an Afghan port as well. Don't yeah, forget, and- and- are. Is, is, this is fascinating because the Chinese are already hugely invested in uh, in Afghanistan especially those mines that they they own as well. So, you know, minerals, instead of uh, traveling through Afghanistan, it's very complicated. They will have to go uh, until they get to Western China. You just, uh, you know, there's a a very good Iranian-built road from Western China to Iran. Then all the way to Chabahar, you load your your ships in Chabahar, and then they, they go to China. So this is all interconnected. And then all the way, of course, to, to Turkey and Greece, of course, very, very important, p Sooner or later, the Chinese will be managing the p port. Syriza, they're not doing it right now because a lot of the nationalist Greeks are saying, no, you're going to sell our port to the Chinese. No, it's more complicated than that. It would be a, manage, a management decision. Uh, sooner or later, the Chinese will be at Piraeus as well, and don't forget that the Maritime Silk Road, according to the Chinese themselves, ends in Venice. <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, and one, so,
1: you know, you have everything from Fujian to Venice, in all points in between.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. One other thing that you that that I need to mention here also for people who don't follow um, this question of Chabahar, like Chabahar is a very important Iranian coastal port. And this is an Indian Ocean uh, launching point for a lot of this trade. And one other player, the major investor is India. And, you know, we have this uh, longstanding feud between China and India. There's all kinds of nationalistic, you know, sentiment and resentment between those countries, the border dispute, which has been going on for since the beginning of time and all of the rest of this. At the same time, you have this sort of confluence of interests in a place like Chabahar because not only are the Chinese investing in iron ore extraction out of Afghanistan, but so are the Indians. They're, ma- they're major bidders for all of those lots as well. And so if you have the Chinese-administered Gwadar port and you have a joint Chinese-Indian-Iranian uh, port at Chabahar, you're beginning to see economic links that are far more substantive than just India joining the Shanghai Cooperation Organization as a political process, but rather an economic integration and uh, uh, interdependence process.
1: Absolutely. This is also extremely important, Eric, because... uh, The Shanghai Cooperation Organization is also evolving as an economic integration forum. Like last year at uh, the the St. Petersburg Economic Forum, I I was probably the only Westerner in the room. I went to a fascinating SEO debate. There were lots of very important Chinese officials, lots of Central Asians, and not a single Westerner. I was there, obviously, as a journalist in the audience. And I was, it, it was absolutely fascinating, because then you could see the way they are uh, guiding the SEO. It's not about, uh, you know, the initial uh, uh, aim of the SCO was very Chinese to, according to Chinese, to combat the three evils, terrorism, separatism, uh, that, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. No, now it's an economic integration mechanism as well. And don't forget, Afghanistan is an observer country. Soon they're going to to be admitted as a member. This year, at their summit, it's next month in Russia, most probably India and Pakistan will be admitted as members as well. For the moment, they are observers. And don't forget that after the, the end of sanctions against Iran, assuming this is going to happen, it's another conversation, Iran will be admitted as a full member as well. And this... Look, look! Look at the possibilities in terms of economic integration of all, of all these countries. There are, you know, partners in the New Silk Roads. Some of them are members of the Eurasian Economic Union, and most of them will be members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. All this points towards the same uh, end game, which is total Eurasian integration. In fact, this is a process that's going to last. I would say for the next. 10, 20, 30 years at least until when we get to 2040, maybe we, (laughs) if we're still alive, of course, maybe there will be Eurasia as a whole, at least the Asia part of Eurasia will be completely integrated. And there's no Western hand on it. This is being made by Asians. And this is something that in all these discussions uh, in China, in Russia, in Iran, uh, even in Turkey, uh, I keep hearing for the past few years the same thing. Look, this is—it's our integrated Asian future. We have to build our Asian integration energy grid. So you know, this—the West will be okay. Uh, investors, of course, uh, they can profit. They can sell to to all to all these integrated countries. But this is a process that's being conducted by themselves, of course. And I would say and. We can say Chinese leadership, but it's 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 very diffuse as well. It's uh, it, they, they're not uh, unlike the situation in the South China Sea, where China can be heavy-handed sometimes. In the Eurasian integration in Central Asia, they are much more accommodating, and they also know that Central Asia it was a Russian sphere of influence. So. Mm-hmm. The, the negotiations between the russians and the chinese are, are very subtle and they are there's a lot of mutual respect as well and when it comes to afghanistan for instance they uh, the chinese and the russians have been saying this for a while look the shanghai cooperation organization is going to solve the afghan problem and this is something that little by little we're going we're we're getting there but it's slowly but surely once again the chinese have already sent missions to talk to the taliban the afghan taliban yeah. directly directly this is not uh, you know some uh, emissary from the taliban discussing in qatar discussing with the americans so this is much more serious this is an official chinese mission they go to to afghanistan to talk to them but okay what do you want essentially obviously the taliban are going to say we don't know because nothing transpired from it what they're going to say is look we want what we wanted from bill clinton in 1996 our cut <laughs>
0: yeah basically that's right if you give us our
1: cut we're cool
0: <laughs> yeah you know I want to I want to shift gears a little bit and I'm actually not even really shifting gears because I think this is all related but um the bottom line is, you know, you you affectionately refer to the Western ruling class or whatever as the the quote unquote the masters of the universe, and it's funny every time yeah. I read that, I think He Man and Skeletor. But you know, the the, the point is, um, I, in my mind, there are counter moves that are that are. Not only just happening, but that are really rapidly developing. And I think, and I want you to give me your analysis of this. I think one of the counter moves is these, these so-called trade agreements that the West is pushing very heavily. And, you know, here in the United States, for instance, you know, you hear a lot from especially people on the left, labor and, and, you know, trade union activists and others talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the TTIP and the, you know, these trade agreements and how bad they are for labor and how they're really a corporate, you know, sort of supranational uh, 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 infrastructure, if you will, legal and otherwise. And all of that is true. And all of that is absolutely important. But I also see these as an integrated strategy that the West is using to counter all of these Eurasian developments. Because if you see Eurasia coming together, the New Silk Road, the Maritime Silk Road, the Eurasian Economic Union, all of these things, what can the West really do to stop that? Well, nothing. What they can do is have the countermeasure of this global trade architecture that they dominate through their corporate control that allows them to maintain a form of economic hegemony simultaneous or in parallel to this Eurasian integration. That's happening in the Pacific sphere with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, in the Atlantic sphere with the TTIP and the TISA. So talk a little bit about these trade agreements. I know you've written about them recently and how they relate to this Eurasian. Asian integration process. Uh,
1: That's it, uh, Eric. Absolutely. This is NATO on trade. And it's seen as NATO on trade in Europe. Uh, It's seen as NATO on trade in many parts of Asia, especially, I would say, especially Japan and Malaysia, which are the top two Asian nations that uh, they are extremely uh, wary of of, uh, all the provisions of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific. In Europe, uh, it's very it's fascinating because uh, for what a year year and a half or so I've been talking every time I go to the countryside let's say in France in Italy or Spain I talk to high quality agricultural producers and they all tell me the same thing we know exactly what that is it's Monsanto cargo and all those uh, mm-hmm. big shots coming here and you know taking over our lands with GMOs and etc and we're going to disappear sooner or later. Uh, so the countryside, in, especially, especially in Southern Europe, they know exactly what uh, TTIP is all about. Uh, for big corporations, it's fantastic, because we all know that, and everybody in the West knows, everybody who's, who's following the news in the U.S. knows, it has been uh, negotiated in secret. There's no transparency at all. It's a bunch of corporations, essentially. Um, and, and, that, and that's why the American government, or the current uh, administration, is, is so eager to sign it, because that's it. You know, we're going to create jobs in America. In America, you all know this is going to reduce jobs in America. Of course. Everybody of course. knows that because this, the it's more delocalization of uh, big American corporations and taking over uh, special sectors that they haven't been... They haven't managed so far to take over, like agricultural in Japan or the auto industry in Japan and agriculture in Europe especially and inundating Europe with GMOs, which uh, for uh, the average European, this is absolutely... They absolutely freak out when, when, when they start to know the details of TTIP. The TTIP the is never discussed in a major European media. Like you won't see a serious discussion on uh, the major British, uh, Italian, uh, French or Spanish or German newspapers. You know. Don't forget that most uh, uh, German corporations are in favor of TTIP. So in in terms of the average European citizen or the average Eurasian citizen, it's an absolute disaster. It will be in terms of uh, American jobs disappearing down the drain uh, once again. And it is a concerted strategy. It's being discussed as we speak at the Bilderberg meeting in Austria Mm -hmm. this weekend. Uh, I wrote about this, uh, I I think yesterday, I I published yesterday a piece making the link between the the G1 plus uh, Dominion's. in Germany, so-called G7, and Bilderberg. At the G1, they were discussing TTIP. At Bilderberg, this weekend, they're discussing TTIP as well. Uh, the fast-track uh, vote in the U.S. is going to be very, very important. Uh, the Republicans might throw a spanner in the works, but uh, maybe the thing was going to pass. So this is, this is going to be the Obama administration legacy in terms of, look, we're going to implement NATO on trade. And it's a multiple treaty. And the fact that WikiLeaks leaked this week, uh, they leaked the health annex to the TPP, Mm -hmm. in fact, the the Trans-Pacific. And it's it's an absolute disaster. It's big pharma ruling everything. So And this will apply to big agricultural ruling everything as well. So so this is the so-called industrialized West response to Asian integration. We're going to try to lock up uh, global commerce in an Atlanticist way as a way of uh, trying to prevent Eurasian integration, which is what the Chinese and the Russians have been trying to sell the Europeans for a while now. It started the president putting... That famous, uh, uh, it was not even a metaphor, what, as a direct reference to the lo, uh, Lisbon to Vladivostok Eurasian integration. This was sev- six or seven years ago, if I, if I mm. remember correctly. And this metamorphosed into the new Silk Roads, which is exactly the same thing. The new Silk Roads is Madrid to Shanghai. Let's put it this way. It's exactly the same. It's Eurasian integration with Western Europe integrated with Asia. Uh, Not only in naval terms, uh, the Maritime Silk Road, but especially overland. And that's why all these uh, high-speed rail, uh, frantic Chinese-led high-speed rail, including the Trans-Siberian as well. Uh, The Trans-Siberian at the moment is uh, six days. Uh, in high-speed rail is going to be less than two. So you can ship anything from Europe to uh, eastern China in less than three days. If you compare this with, the, uh, you know, it takes uh, weeks to do it uh, uh, in the maritime uh, Silk Road, you see the new, the, the new possibilities that are open as well. So uh build build bilderberg is the way they are discussing this now and you know, i have one of one of my informants <laughs> over there uh, a captain of industry who usually updates me on on these kinds of things and they are the they are actually the most important uh, Item of the agenda this year is not Ukraine, is not Syria, and is not Iran. Iran is important because uh, this is the way for Western multinationals to try to penetrate the Iranian market. But don't forget that these rules of the game will still be established by the Iranians themselves. They will open up as much as they want to. Mm-hmm. And for and and for some selected customers, which would be some uh, European energy majors, for instance, uh, for American multinationals, it's going to be much more complicated to penetrate the Iranian market, which is a very valuable market for American corporations. Seventy million people, highly educated, they're you know, itching to buy high quality products. Assume, assuming the US is still makes uh, handmade. <laughs> That's a big products. assumption. That's big if. I remember when I was a kid, I used to buy high quality American manufactured products not yeah. anymore <laughs> no yeah. those
0: are those days are long are long gone, but you know we we 're talking about eurasian integration and you 're talking about this potential that uh, the Chinese and the Russians have really kind of offered to the Europeans. For a long time now, and I think that this is kind of one of the ways that we've now come in in some sense full circle to a lot of these political conflicts, for instance, in Ukraine, because what you see is that the outgrowth of that, this this economic san- sanctions regime that was pushed by the United States and that their toadies in Europe kind of followed along with. I mean, this is a means of driving a wedge between Russia and Europe and between Asia and Europe thereby breaking whatever continuity was developing within the Eurasian space and so when we're talking about the conflict in Ukraine sure it's about nato expansion it's about imperial hegemony it's about all of these uh, issues but from a purely economic perspective it's quite literally about about essentially sawing in half the eurasian space and preventing all of these what what seemed like inevitabilities from being you know coming to fruition
1: Yes, absolutely right. And uh, it's fascinating, the the Russian-Chinese counterpunch vis-a-vis Ukraine is also fascinating. You know what they're going to do in the long run? Ignore Ukraine, bypass Ukraine. Gazprom will bypass Ukraine uh, in terms of pipelines. Uh, It's already official. It's going to start, what, three, three and a half years from now, 2018 to 2019. So, you know, Ukraine, in, in terms of a transit country, uh, supplying uh, Russian energy to Europe will be absolutely irrelevant. The Chinese, the new Silk Roads, they bypass Ukraine completely. They don't even mention Ukraine in China. You know, they, they don't care. It's not important. Uh, what's important for them is Central Asia, Kazakhstan. Uh, if from Russia, uh, the, there will be uh, the the Trans Siberian extension. It, it could go from Russia to Finland directly, and then through Scandinavia. You name it. Uh, so, Ukraine is already irrelevant for Eurasian integration. So, if uh, if Ukraine would be, let's say, annexed by the EU, which is not going to happen. And this I have from very good sources in Brussels. Nobody in Brussels cares about Ukraine. They don't want they to inherit
0: have that nightmare. That's
1: They're strange. not going to inherit the nightmare. They cannot even... Pay their own bills yeah. in Europe at the moment. Can you imagine that at least eighty billion dollars and growing of Ukraine debt? Ukraine now is an IMF colony, so the IMF can do anything they want with Ukraine, and nobody knows exactly what to do. The, the American agricultural concerns, of course, Cargill, Monsanto, yes, they want to annex uh, Ukraine. Uh, very, very good agricultural lands, of Black course. Earth belt, Apart, yeah. yeah, yeah. Apart from that, there's nothing. The industrial. Uh, The industrial belt is in the east and part of it is destroyed and was destroyed by themselves, by Kiev's so-called army and militias. You know, I saw that by myself in Donetsk earlier this year and this industrial belt, they were directly linked to Russia as well. Their trade is mainly uh, eastern Ukraine with Russia. So Mm -hmm. they lost that as well. And even Poroshenko himself, he admitted that Ukraine lost at least 25% of their industrial potential. It's much more than 25%. But he was forced to admit that as well because of the actions of his so-called army, which is basically a bunch of militias. So Ukraine is a basket case. Nobody wants this. IMF colony. So, you know, the American... if, if there was a plan, I doubt it, because uh, uh, neocons, they don't think strategically. And we know that uh, we just need to look at the record mm-hmm. when they were in power. They never, they never thought about, OK, what if there is a counterpunch? What if our plan, our, our plan A doesn't work, which is to, to separate Ukraine from Russia? Obviously, they never thought about that. And this is, it, it's already happening.
0: Well, th- you're yeah, absolutely right, and thank you for dropping the words "counterpunch" there two or three times. That was very, <laughs> that was very nice. Um, you know, that's I, I agree completely, and I think that that brings us, and we're we're coming to the end of our uh, the end of our discussion here. But that brings us to another issue that I think is really of central importance, and it is also almost completely suppressed in in the Western media, especially, and that is the development of real actual, honest-to-God military cooperation between Russia and China. This is a real phenomenon that needs to be discussed because this is something that I think changes the game very, very significantly. You know, even just a few years ago, it was an absolute fantasy to even consider the notion of Chinese troops marching in Red Square and yet that's exactly what we saw last month during mm-hmm. the Victory Day celebrations. We see the Chinese the Russians having joint naval drills in the Black Sea at the very same time that NATO has its naval assets in the Black Sea, essentially sending a very clear message. You see Russian jets buzzing U.S. naval vessels in the Black Sea. You see Russian naval vessels participating in naval activities with the Chinese in the South China Sea. All of these things are happening simultaneously, and I don't see any way that that is not a clear Indication of not only an economic partnership that's developing, but a true military strategic alliance. Now, they will never call it that. They're not at the point where they're willing to admit that publicly. But de facto, that's what we're seeing. And to me, this is a counterweight to NATO. This is the development of a non-Western uh, hegemonic military strategic system.
1: Absolutely right, Eric. And <laughs> tell that to neocons in the U.S. You know, once again, the, you know they are specialists in uh, devising their own blowback. It's it's fascinating. It happened in Iraq. It happened in Afghanistan. It happened all over the Middle East, and now it's happening across Eurasia. In fact, so as uh, the two processes in parallel, the the Chinese modernizing. Their armed forces, and especially relying on very, very good asymmetrical uh, setups, like you know, construction of uh, nuclear submarines in a secret Fujian base, that kind of stuff, to patrol the South China Sea and eventually send them to the uh, to the Indian Ocean as well. Um, they they know that they cannot fight the the U.S. militarily. Up front and they don't they will never even think about it so in terms of asymmetrical war if there is an asymmetrical war in the future they are building themselves towards this end and at the same time the Russians in terms of modernizing their ICBMs and their their mechanisms against uh, prompt a global strike they know that the Americans will do a first strike and the Pentagonists have already admitted that. So the Russians have been working on on this secretly for the past two or three years at least. And soon, and I would say soon, it's 2015, 2016, with the S-500s being rolled out, which is, this is a matter of, uh, uh, it's it's, it's an extremely uh, subtle and uh, secret conversation. Uh, Some of my American sources, in fact, very well informed, they tell me that The S-500s are already being rolled out. Mm -hmm. Nobody in the Russian defense ministry will ever confirm that. And I uh, I talked about that in Moscow. No answers at all. Assuming they will be rolled out in 2016, which is next year, this means that from next year onwards, Russia will be virtually invulnerable to anything the Americans can throw at them. And obviously, the people at the Pentagon, they know that.
0: And let me so, just, uh, I just want to yeah. add real quick for for listeners. Yes. The S500, and this is an important distinction here. This is not simply an upgrade of the S400s. This is an entirely different kind mm-hmm. of system. And the S500 and the S400, which is a clear uh, defense system, a missile defense system, these are envisioned as working in parallel, not with the S500 replacing them, but as them working together within a cohesive, uh, uh, call it a defensive/offensive slash offensive strategy.
1: Exactly. And uh, exactly, it's it's a missile defense system, but it can also be a missile attack system exactly. at the same time, you know. Yes, it's a much more sophisticated than the S400s, which by the way, uh, the Russians are selling to China. Yep. And the S-300s, they are selling to Iran. And Iran has their, they have their own system, which is similar to the S-300s. And the Iranians tell me, we we are even better than the S-300s. Well, anyway, so in, in terms of the uh, convergence, military convergence of China and Russia, uh, this, we, we have to add Iran to that as well, because Iran, they buy weapons from uh from Russia, uh, and now from now on, after the end of sanctions, it will be a free-for-all. Uh, this fits into the pattern of, a, a, let's say, an Eurasian integration defense grid in parallel to the Eurasian integration energy grid as well. So, it, 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 everywhere you look, from all angles, it all points towards convergence. It, it's fascinating. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, and of course, the Pentagon. What 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 do they have? They have prompt global strike, which is a, a, a an offensive uh, first strike capability that they the Pentagon already said they would be willing to deploy. They are always thinking in terms of uh, it's 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 a paranoid Doctor Strange Love mindset all the time. Huh? Uh, it's Russian aggression. It's Chinese aggression. So we're going to counter uh, uh, aggress their aggression with our own aggression. It's completely crazy. You know, it's like a Dadaist manifesto uh, applied to to, to, to militarization. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's a, so. No, when you follow this every day, Eric, sometimes, uh, you know I have to. Uh my metaphors would go towards Andre Breton and Tristan Tsara, you know, surrealist and Dadaist, yeah. instead of going to Sun Tzu and, yeah. or, uh, or some, and all these guys. <laughs>
0: some kind of auto automatic automatic artwork. You know, just put the pen on the paper and just move your hand and see what comes out of it. <laughs> um well I could probably we could probably do four more hours on all of these developments, but I, I think we're out of time. So um but I would obviously love to have you back on. I'd love to talk about a thank bunch you. of different stuff as well. I mean, look, we didn't even touch the Turkey question because I think yeah. that um, there's so many angles to Turkey, not only with regard to the energy issue, but with regard to the their neo-Ottoman psychosis that Erdogan is pursuing and all of the rest of this, but let's leave that for another time. Um, Pepe Escobar, again, I want to thank you for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Listeners, I mean, you heard it here. I mean, Pepe is the best. I mean, his stuff is everywhere. Asia Times, he's the rogue correspondent. You can follow his work there. Uh, Of course, Counterpunch carries Pepe's stuff regularly, RT and many other places as well. Um, Pepe Escobar, thanks again for coming on Counterpunch Radio.
1: Thanks, Eric. It was an enormous pleasure. Thanks to all Counterpunchers. And uh, as we say here in Thailand, sabai, which, you know, relax and be happy, which is considering the horror around us uh, that's the only way out, right?
0: Absolutely. Uh, so so make yourself a drink and uh, follow the Eurasian developments. That's what we can say. Anyway, um, uh, come back next week. We'll have another excellent program. Again, uh, uh, iTunes reviews, Counterpunch Magazine, all of the ways that you can get involved. Very much appreciated. And uh, that's it. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks again. Bye-bye.